0: Our text for today is the account of Jesus healing a young boy who was is demon-possessed. Once again proving, as we see through the four gospel accounts, that Jesus is wholly unlike anyone that has ever walked the earth. In a day and age that we live in where superhero movies dominate the box office and the television programs, we know that the one true and real superhero is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, found within this text is something that I find quite compelling. It involves the struggle that is all too common within the life of a Christian. Perhaps it's something that you may be experiencing right now. What is it that I am referring to? It is the struggle between faith and doubt, belief and unbelief. And for the Christian, this will be a constant battle. There's going to be times during our lives where we have great victories, and there's other times as we know that there's going to be defeats. It is important, though, that we acknowledge this reality that we're going to have this struggle. And in doing so, this will help us be aware that the answer that we need, as always, is to fix our eyes upon Jesus. The more that we get to know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, the more. We can trust Him. Now in many ways, I know that I am preaching to people who believe this truth. I am preaching to the proverbial choir this morning. But I think we can never grow tired of learning more about and understanding how truly great that Jesus is. It's our lifelong commitment to do so. So before we actually get to the text of this morning, I would like to highlight some of the amazing things that the Gospel of Mark tells us about Jesus. Now the Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospel accounts. It was written by John Mark, who had been a companion of Paul and Barnabas, as we see in Acts, as he traveled along with their missionary journeys until he departs from them. But most important, most, uh, he was an intimate associate of the Apostle Peter. So we believe that most of the content that's found in his gospel was based on Peter's eyewitness testimony. Now Mark's gospel is also thought to be the first of the four to be written, probably around 55 to 59 AD. So we're talking about only 20 to 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's within a generation, so this is real eyewitness testimony. Mark's gospel is written primarily to a Gentile audience. And the content concentrates more on what Jesus did during his ministry rather than what he taught. And as we have spoken on in previous messages, the miracles of Jesus serve to prove his deity and his rightful claim as the promised Messiah. It gives us confidence to know that our faith in him is not in vain or just some simple wishful thinking. Jesus was and is everything that he said. And we can be assured that he is trustworthy. And that he will provide for us everything that we need for our lives. So again, before we get to the text, I want to build up a little bit of a case here. I want to build up a little bit of, again, how awesome Jesus is. And we're going to do that. We can go to many places, obviously, in the scriptures to do that. But we're going to just stay right here in Mark. We're going to look at Mark a little bit in some of the earlier chapters. and this, We're particularly going to look at the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5. And in this section of the gospel, we have several accounts that prove, again, that Jesus has tremendous power, unlike anything that's ever been seen. To borrow from Bible commentary, Warren Wiersbe, he says that Jesus is the master of every situation and the conqueror of, any, of every enemy. And in these specific chapters, he identifies as Jesus' power over four particular enemies. And it's going to be easy for us to remember because each one of them is going to be identified by the letter D. And it helps to remember. So the first one, again, you don't have to turn there if you will, want to, but if you'd like to, Mark chapter 4. At the end of the chapter, verses 35 to 41, we see the account of Jesus' calming the sea. So most of you are familiar with this account. Jesus and his disciples go out into a boat and they're heading out on the Sea of Galilee, going to their point of destination. And the Sea of Galilee was very familiar to most of the apostles because they were fishermen, and this was the place where they did business. But the Sea of Galilee, based upon where it is geographically, is below sea level and surrounded by mountains. So the winds that will very often come off the Mediterranean will come in an unexpected manner, And what would happen is that those winds would create great storms to be on the Sea of Galilee. Now you might imagine again that these apostles were quite familiar with this, that they understood very well about this, but here we are in this situation where they are very afraid. And they are very afraid of what's going to happen, and yet here Jesus is calm asleep in the back of the boat. They wake him up, and they're asking, and they're very... uh, concerned about what it is that he's going to do or if he has the power to do anything. And we know that Jesus tells him, or as he stands up, he says, hush, be still, and he's able to calm the waters. And he says, why are you afraid? Do you have little faith? And we see here clearly that Jesus has tremendous power. And his power here is over danger. D is for danger. He's got power over danger. But the account continues now into chapter 5. They come to the other side, after being in the boat, and they come into the land of the Gerasenes. And when he gets out of the boat, he's immediately met by an unclean spirit, and this unclean spirit comes upon him. This unclean spirit had tormented this poor man for quite some time. They had put him in shackles, and he had torn them apart, and he was strong enough that nobody could subdue him. Screaming among the tombs, it tells us, in the mountains, and gashing himself with stones. He sees Jesus at a distance, He runs up and he bows down before him and shouts with a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? This demon recognized and knew who he was, knew who he was speaking with. As the account goes on, we see that Jesus has a conversation. He asks who the person is, and the demon says that his name is Legion, meaning that he had many demons with inside him. But Jesus, as he can always do, simply calls this demon or demons to come out of the man, and they do. So Jesus has power not only over danger, he has power over demons. As chapter 5 goes on and continues, he moves along and he encounters a man by the name of Jarius, who is a leader in the synagogue, who has a daughter who is very sick, sick to the point of death. And he asks if he would come and perhaps if him just being in his presence or doing something that he would be able to heal the daughter. He knew what Jesus had done up until this point. So Jesus goes along and goes with this man. But as he's going along with this man, he comes upon a woman. A woman who is the text tells us is suffering from a hemorrhage for over twelve years. She's bleeding. All the doctors that she goes to and no one can help her. No one can do anything for her. But she thinks if I could just simply touch him, that I could be healed. And she reaches out and she touches him and she's healed. She had the faith in order to believe that and she's healed. So on the way to healing the other girl Jarius' daughter he heals this woman who has a hemorrhage of 12 years so we see that Jesus has the power over disease as he goes on a little bit further he comes to Jarius' house and we know at this point Jarius' daughter has died but that's not an obstacle to the Lord Jesus Christ as he goes in and he talks and he brings and he just tells the little girl arise I say to you And the little girl, he grabs her by the hand and she arises. So Jesus has the power over death. So he has the power over danger, the power over demons, the power over disease, the power over death. Now, interestingly enough, I had made mention of this a couple weeks ago, I think in a Sunday school. I had had heard uh, R.C. Sproul say this. He was talking about how atheism how it's so predominant and so influential and so becoming in our society. And I mean, it's always existed, but now it's becoming on the forefront where people are just not even afraid to say it anymore. And it's becoming such a a push into our society. And he went on to say, if you look at atheism and you kind of study the history of it, particularly as when it started to develop in the late 1800s and 1900s, where it started to become a discipline or an actual academic uh, practice, that men like Sigmund Freud and others would come along and they'd say, well, the reason why people believe in something is that they believe in it because they're looking for a crutch. They're looking for somebody to help them. They live in a world that has so much danger, disease, and death, and all of these different things, and people are looking for something just to make themselves feel better, to help them get through the day. But they're looking not to be afraid of those things, so they're looking for something that perhaps a wishful thinking kind of thing that could take their mind off of it in order for them to feel better. Sproul goes on to say that the problem with that, though, is is that if you were going to have that, that's fine and dandy, but you wouldn't create and have the God of the Bible to be that person. Because even in the account that we just saw in Mark chapter 4 is that when the apostles, who were very, very afraid in this boat of the danger of the storm, after Jesus heals the, or after Jesus calms the sea, the text tells us that they were more afraid of him than they were of the actual danger that they were in. So the idea is, and the concept here, is that why would we create a God who we're actually more afraid of than the actual dangers we want him to protect us from? And I think that speaks to, again, the veracity and the truthfulness of the scriptures, that this God is wholly like anything else that we could even conjure up in our own minds to create. And certainly if we were going to do that and create it, we wouldn't make a God that is the way that our Lord is. Now again, these events that we just talked about here in these chapters, they're amazing but what occurs in chapter, beginning of chapter 9, which served as our opening scripture reading this morning, really sets Jesus apart. In these verses, we saw the transfiguration of Jesus. Three of his disciples were taken to the mountaintop with him, where they had the tremendous privilege to witness the glory that Jesus had before his incarnation, the glory that he had from eternity past. In Matthew's account, in 2, 3, it, told us, it tells us that he was transfigured before them, that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Transfigured speaks of a change on the outside that comes from the inside. Jesus was allowing his apostles to see the majesty of his glory that was hidden mostly during his earthly ministry. This was who he was, and it served to strengthen the weak faith of his disciples and also helped to strengthen them for what was going to come in the future and to prepare them for it. We see in, uh, in addition to this count that he encounters, while well, he's up there, that they see Moses and Elijah speaking with him as well. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. And Jesus was greater than them because he had actually fulfilled all of the things of the law and he fulfilled all the prophets. And as if this is not great enough, we're told that the Father speaks from, a, from out of a cloud in heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. All of these things were given to the disciples, and by extension, through God's word is given to us so that we can know that this God that we serve and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is so worthy to be trusted, so worthy for us to love, to know, and to just dedicate and commit our lives to, that we don't have to be afraid that he is not capable of doing the things that he says he's going to do, that we know full well that he is, even above and beyond that we can think or ask. That's just a little small kind of explanation or bringing us into the specific text that we're looking at this morning. But again, it's just a point to just hammer home over and over again is that the more we get to know Jesus, the more we can understand that we can trust him. So let's look at our text. And I'm going to begin by looking at reading verses 14 to 18. And when they came back to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when, immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, What are you disputing with them? And one person from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, because he has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth, and grinds his teeth, and becomes stiff. And I told your disciples so that they would, they would cast it out, but they could not do it. Now, this account that we're looking at here is also found in Matthew and Luke's gospel. But Mark actually provides for us the most detail. All three accounts have this event taking place right after the transfiguration. And in verse 14, we're told that Jesus and the three whom he had taken with him, Peter, James, and John, come back to rejoin the other nine disciples. Now, according to Luke, this happens the day after the event of the transfiguration. And it is believed by many scholars that this transfiguration took place at Mount Hermon, which would be well over 100 miles north of Jerusalem. So we're looking at almost the northernmost part of where Jesus' ministry was conducted. As they come together, they're quickly drawn into a controversy. We're told that a large crowd that seemed to be watching a dispute that was going on between the nine disciples and the religious Jews, the scribes. So these men are disputing amongst each other, and there's a large crowd that's gathering on, probably wondering what's going on. When Jesus arrives, though, the crowd quickly shifts their attention to him, and they run to him. Now, at this point, chronologically speaking, we are well into the life of Jesus' ministry. So his fame has spread throughout the land and he is quite well known. His appearance, wherever he is, is like that of a celebrity. And then the crowds start to flock to him. Now we know the crowds will flock to him for different reasons. Some are coming to him because they're actually interested in what he has to say. Some are coming because they're just looking for entertainment. Others are coming because they're looking for something from him. He had fed 5,000, he had fed 4,000, he's healing people left and right. You know, people are looking for material things. So everyone comes to him for different reasons, but nonetheless, wherever Jesus is, the people want to be. Some commentators speculate that the reason that the crowds flocked to Jesus was because his face was still glowing from the transfiguration, similar to Moses when he came down from the mountain with his encounter with God in Exodus. Exodus. I don't think that this is likely. In fact, I would probably say that it's not. First, I would say is that the text doesn't tell us that that had happened. And secondly, we know that as before Jesus leaves down the mountain with the three disciples, he tells them not to tell anybody of what just occurred. So it would stand to reason that as he's coming down that he wouldn't have any kind of image of his glory being shown to the people so that they would start questioning and wondering what was happening. So I don't believe that that be the case. In verse 16, though, we're told that Jesus, Jesus uh, had asked these people what the dispute is about. And quickly in verse 17, we see that before either the disciples or the scribes could answer, a man steps forward. And this man is desperate. And as we piece together the accounts from the other two Gospels, it's clear that the situation that he presents is quite serious. According to Matthew seventeen fourteen. The man comes to Jesus and he immediately falls on his knees begging for help. His son, his only son, as Luke will tell us, has an evil spirit that has consumed him. It causes him to be mute. He foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth. He becomes stiff, slams him to the ground. One of the accounts, it says that he's a lunatic, which is another word for epileptic. And his father is pleading for him to be made well. I think there's a point to be made here is that while we certainly know that there are cases of epilepsy that exist medically, we know that in other cases there are issues of mental illness, we know in other cases that people perhaps are not in their right minds due to alcohol or drug abuse, I don't think that we can rule out, as in the case of this boy, the possibility of demonic possession even in our day. I would imagine it was probably much more common in the days of Jesus's earthly ministry because Satan at that time is probably trying to marshal all his forces together in opposition to Jesus, but I still think that it can occur today. There's a number of years ago I remember a story, I wasn't present for this, but I remember hearing several first-hand accounts of people that I knew of a situation where a bunch of police officers were called to a house of a gentleman who said that his son was acting completely and totally irrational. Now the term that the police would use would be EDP, emotionally disturbed person. As the police officers responded to the scene and there was about ten of them that came to the scene, that the father met them at the door and the father said that my son is possessed. Now again, that's not stuff that you always hear every day, and sometimes you hear that and the cop might say, right, well, all right, yeah, nope, yeah, maybe. You know, the skeptical nature of cops. But nonetheless, they went in and he says, I'm telling you, my son is possessed. So again, from some of the people that I had spoken to, they said that they went into the room and they saw this young man, probably no more than late teens, and he wasn't a very big kid or anything by that, and they said that he just looked like, again, like something they had never seen before, and it took over 10 guys just to get him down in order to get him cuffed and to get him to the hospital, and they said we've never really encountered anything like that, it was just like superhuman strength. They get this young man to the hospital, they bring him into the psych ward at the hospital, and they have him strapped to the bed where they actually have him double cuffed with both arms to the hospital bed in addition to leg shackles on him and tying him down so that he can't do anything. And initially he's sleeping, and there's a couple of cops that are, sitting, that are sitting in the room with him, kind of watching him. Here he is strapped to the bed and whatnot, and at one point he wakes up. And apparently the cops in the room, at that point he wakes up, and now he's got this fit of rage that he actually was able to break the cuffs and the side of the bed from the hospital bed, completely off. And he takes that part of the hospital bed and now starts attacking them. They try a taser on him, it doesn't work. They got to the point where he was inflicting so much harm that they actually had to shoot him. And he didn't die. But he was actually, at that point, subdued, finally. Now again, I'm not here to say one thing or another, but if you're talking about something that would appear to be a demonic possession, I mean, it doesn't probably get more detail than that. So we are dealing with a spiritual world that is out there. We are dealing with many different things that can afflict us. And here we are, but we know that Jesus Christ is the one that we're going to look to for all of these issues. The man also tells Jesus that he had brought his boy to the disciples to cast out the demon, but they could not do it. Now this is interesting, because according to Mark 3.15 and Mark 6.7, the disciples had been given authority to do that very thing, cast out unclean spirits. And in Mark 6.13, we actually see the evidence of them having done that. Yet here they were unable to do so, And we might imagine that the argument that was taking place between the scribes and the disciples was probably in regards to this. The scribes were more than likely using the disciples' failure as an opportunity to try and discredit the ministry of Jesus and to mock them for it. Again, it's interesting to note that the scribes had traveled quite a long way from home in order to do this. They're over 100 miles away from Jerusalem. And they may have been assigned, these particular scribes may have been assigned to keep tabs on Jesus, to track his movement, to see what he was doing everywhere he was going. And yet, despite all of the things that they had witnessed, all of the miracles that he had done and all of the teaching he had done, their hearts were still hardened. It's a sad testimony to their failure as spiritual leaders that they, that they would not listen to the one who had come to speak to them truth. And it's also sad as their failure as spiritual leaders, that there's no evidence whatsoever that they actually try to help the boy themselves. Rather, they just come to be critics. And that's a dangerous thing. We don't want to be... We want to avoid that. You know, sometimes it's easy just to be the critic. And someone that's not willing to just get your hands dirty to try to solve a problem, it's easy just to sit back and just criticize others. I think we want to be warned and guarded against that. Now, in verse 19, we see Jesus' response... It says, and he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Now there is some question as to whom Jesus is referring to here. But I think we could say that he's probably speaking to everyone that is there. Specifically to his disciples. But he's also talking to the scribes and he's also talking to the crowd as well. The crowds and the scribes Because they were unbelieving and that their only interest probably was seeing the signs and wonders. But again, perhaps the greater rebuke is for the disciples. Because again, they had been with Jesus every day, witnessing so much of what he had done. And they had been given the power themselves even to do this. Their failure here was an indictment on the lack of faith that they displayed. But Jesus' rebuke doesn't prevent him from displaying compassion to the boy and his father. So he calls the boy to actually come, the father and the boy to come to him. Verse 20 and 21, it says, And they brought the boy to him. When he saw him, the spirit immediately threw him into convulsions and falling to the ground. He began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. As the boy is brought forward... Again, the Spirit no doubt knows that his days of tormenting this child are coming to an end. He acts in a violent manner to harm the boy as he has done for his whole life, since childhood, as the Father had told Jesus. But notice how calm Jesus is throughout the entire situation, as he always is. He's always in complete control. He's never flustered. His mere presence at a, on a, at the, at a location, even, when sometimes, even without him doing anything, is enough to inspire faith. I love that when you read in the scriptures, that everywhere he is, that no matter what comes against him, whether it's an attack against him, even when he's on the cross, that He is in complete and utter and total control at all times. In verse 22, the father continues his explanation. He says, It is often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Here the father's further explains the seriousness of this situation. It was not just that his son was possessed, but this demon repeatedly tried to kill him by either throwing him into the fire or the water. What a horrible plight this had to be. been. Caused an additional heavy burden to the father or to his wife or any other family member because they had to be on guard at all times to be ready to rescue their son, either from being burned to death or being drowned. The word for water is actually plural, meaning that wherever they might have been, so if they were by the sea, perhaps you try to throw them into the sea. If they were by a pond or a lake or a river or whatever it might be, anywhere there was a body of water, it was as if the demon was saying, I'm going to try to drown you. And here his father and anyone else had the 24-7 responsibility of trying to just make sure that his son was going to be okay. But next the father says in desperation, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Knowing that he was powerless and now the disciples had been as well, his last hope is in Jesus. In verse 23, though, we see Jesus' response. But Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus' response here comes in the form of a rebuke. But it's not a rebuke of judgment, it's actually one of mercy. Jesus recognizes that this man has a measure of faith, as we will see in the next verse. Remember, he knows the hearts of all men. But his rebuke here is actually a form of loving discipline in order to help the man exercise his faith, as Jesus so often does. He attempts to draw the faith out of the person. Jesus knows full well, as we see throughout his encounters, especially with those with his own disciples, that the lack of faith... Is not the absence of faith altogether, but rather just the allowance of unbelief to enter into our life to cloud that what we believe. And this really is where the battle is fought so often in the Christian life. For those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we understand and know that we have belief, that we have faith. But there are times, and usually based upon situations that we come in where all of a sudden that faith starts to be clouded, and we can 't see Jesus because it 's always though like something is blocking and getting in our way, and it is our responsibility to fight through that, to kind of push away the clouds or whatever in order for us to be able to see and understand that. I was thinking of different analogies and whatnot. I was thinking about just if you had a treasure chest in your backyard and that treasure chest belongs to you, it is your property, and in that treasure chest is filled with all types of riches. But now maybe you have that treasure chest that's in the ground, you know, and as long as you can see it, you know that you have it. But now all of a sudden you start to put the dirt over it and you bury the treasure chest and you get to the point where now maybe you can't see it anymore and you start to question yourself, is it really there? Is it really there? Now you know it's there because you put it there. You know it's there because you have you know, security around your house and no one's been on your property, but the fact that sometimes when you can't see it because you allow other things to get in the way that you're clouded to whether or not you truly have it. And so often that is really where the battle is for us. So this man, as the disciples, they have faith. They have a faith. But sometimes we know that our faith is lacking. I love what Vance Habner has to say in regards to this. He says that Jesus has to correct the man's understanding when he replies, If you can. He says that the father of the afflicted boy was looking at the wrong if, when he said, If you can help. And the Lord speedily corrects him here. It's not a matter of Christ's ability to help. It's always a matter of our willingness to believe. If you can is not the problem. The problem is if you can believe. And that's usually where most of our problems find. Is that we put a limitation upon the power of God. The limitation is not on Him. The limitation is on us. It's not if you have the power of God. It's if we can believe. And when we think about this... He says, all things are possible to the one who believes. Just think about how great of a promise that is. God has unlimited power, and we're able to be the great beneficiaries of his blessings. But those blessings come through the channel of faith. But this doesn't mean that faith can accomplish anything. But what it does is that those who have faith will set no limits on the power of God. Because we understand and we know that God is always going to work and act according to his perfect will according to his righteousness and that which pleases him now it's important to note though that this verse is one of the verses that has been hijacked by the prosperity gospel movement which falsely teach that this is a name and claim it promise if we desire something just simply believe it and it will be so in that regard to anything and we know that very often what they're talking about is some type of material wealth This is a dangerous and heretical teaching. Ultimately, all things that we need as believers will be given to us, but God will give us what we need, not always necessarily what we want. And that is because our Heavenly Father is, great, is gracious, and He knows best, and all His promises towards us will come to pass. And we can be assured of that. But I know that there are many things that we've probably prayed for over the years, that we haven't received and we wonder why. And there's also things that we probably pray for over the years that if we could look back we're saying thank God you didn't answer that prayer. And think about that especially perhaps when you're a, a new believer. But we trust him and we understand that whatever it is that he gives us is ultimately what is good for us. And we also have to understand too that we have such a limited limited knowledge, not only of him, but of, even of our own lives. You know, the finite trying to comprehend the infinite. We have not seen the end. We don't know what the end of the story looks like for any of us. We don't know what the end is. We're just simply living day by day by faith, trusting him that he will be the one that takes us to the end. Verse 24, the man's response. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe... Help my unbelief. Now this man may perhaps be one of the most honest men in all of the Bible. And quite frankly, I can't wait to meet him. This text tells us that he immediately responds to Jesus in the form of a cry. He doesn't seem to be insulted by what Jesus had said to him. He received the correction. He affirms the facts that he does believe, but then he freely admits that he does have unbelief in his heart. And again, I ask, how many of us can relate to this? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. This is the struggle that we mentioned at the beginning. This is the ongoing battle of the Christian between faith and doubt. And doubt and unbelief, really, they see nothing but what it experiences. It substitutes feelings for facts. And we know this all too well in our emotion-driven society. But our doubting can take many forms. In extreme cases, it could be questioning whether or not God is real or Christianity is true. Sometimes it's questioning whether or not you're even a believer. Or wondering if God is really desirous to help us out of the troubles that we are facing. Doubt creeps in and is an enemy of us. And we have to be on guard against it at all times. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon. He talks about how saying that helping my unbelief is something a person can only say by faith. He says, while men have no faith, they are unconscious of their unbelief. But as soon as they get a little faith, then they begin to be conscious of their unbelief. I think that's so true in so many instances. The unbeliever really doesn't really care or concern themselves with the fact that they're unbelievers but when we become a believer and we start to understand and to know who Jesus is and we start to realize who we are and that perhaps we're not as great as we thought we once were and we realize how much of our hearts really need to be changed and how much we need to put off and put on and all the things that happen during the course of the life we start to move in the path of victory so what do we do in order to overcome this doubt and unbelief Well, first, I think, be encouraged that this is a temptation that's common to all men. You are not alone in this. As I look around this room and all the believers that I see, I know that everyone at some point or another has struggled with unbelief. Some have struggled with doubt to varying degrees. We see that in the scriptures. We see that among the great saints of old. We see that among the disciples. You love when Peter goes out, right, in the water and he tells Jesus, when Jesus is walking on the water, oh, can I come out to you? Jesus says, come, and he walks out, and he's walking, his eyes are fixed on Jesus, and he's doing great, and the second he looks away, he starts to sink. Or when he's in the garden, and he's so brave in the presence of Jesus, he takes his sword, and he's ready to fight all these people, and then yet, a short time later, he's denying Jesus. Doubt and unbelief was creeping in. You see that from the Old Testament, Moses doubting, Gideon, and all of the great men that are listed in the hall of faith at one point or another doubted. So if these tremendous men of the faith doubt it, of course we do as well. So be encouraged that this is a temptation that is common to all men. Second, and as I've tried to make, mention, even the way that we open this message, is just be committed to knowing God's word. The more we get to know God, the better understanding we have of his promises, and the more we have a desire to love and serve him. All right again, my, my opening for this message was just to give a small glimpse of how amazing Jesus is so that we could feel comfortable to trust him. Just like any other relationship we might have, the more you know the person, the more you come to trust them. If you go to a doctor, you have your doctor that you've been going to for any number of years, and they tell you different things and whatnot, usually you're going to trust them because perhaps you've had a relationship with them, and you've had previous experiences with them where they've proved to be trustworthy. If not, you go to another doctor. And some, You, know, you might have a mechanic that you've gone to. I have a mechanic I've been going to for over 20 years. I know that when I go there, that I can trust him. That whatever it is that is wrong with my car, that he will fix it. And he'll do a good job in doing so. How much more so should we do that when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ? I think we need to be open and honest with God in prayer about the struggles we have. This man, what he's saying is really a prayer. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's a prayer. It's a one-line prayer. And maybe that's a prayer that we should commit to ourselves as well. That any time we find ourselves in that bit of struggle, perhaps just as simple as that, Lord, I believe in this moment, help my unbelief. God's not going to turn us away. He didn't turn away this man. He's not going to turn us away. Also, don't shy away from asking the hard and tough questions about the Christian faith. Christianity is a faith that has stood centuries of attack and criticism. There's nothing that's going to come around that will change that. In fact, most of the current attacks are just repackaged ideas from the past that have already been refuted. You just have to go find the answers. Sometimes that involves us being around a mature Christian who perhaps has the answers. where we can find them so we can feel comfortable when we're talking to people that might come against us. Understand and know that this is going to be a lifelong battle. That we're not at any point going to come to full victory while we are here from this battle. Could you imagine if you were perfect? Could you imagine if when God saved you, he just made you perfect? you would be insufferable and intolerable to be around. <laughs> think about that. You really would be. Think about when you, know, you would not be able to really relate to anybody. You wouldn't be able to relate to the struggles that everybody has. You know, Everyone would look upon you and they'd probably want to stay around you. They wouldn't want to be around you because you would just have such an aura about you. They would think that you were pious and better than everybody else, even if you weren't trying to be. You know, The fact that we still live in this flesh and we have this battle and whatnot it allows us to see progress. It allows us to see the change that goes on. It allows us to be dependent upon God so that we could still be in that recognizing that we can't do anything apart from him. You know, He's going to make us perfect one day, but it's not the here and now. The here and now is a training ground for us to become more like him and also to be able to relate with others and to be able to be around others so that we can fellowship and we can share the struggles that we have together. We put on the armor of God found in Ephesians 6. We know that it ensures victory. And we trust in the promises. Philippians 1.6 For I am confident of this very thing that he began a good work among you will com- complete it by the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to take us all the way to the end. He's not holding our hand and taking us on the journey and then just dropping us off halfway through and then going about and we have to catch up to him. He's going to take us. Sometimes we're walking with him. Sometimes he's dragging us along the way. But nonetheless, he will take us to the end. So we look to him. Our passage continues in verse 25 to 27. It says, When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. So after this valuable teaching moment, Jesus goes about healing the boy. He had not forgotten the man's cry and his compassion and power on display. He commands the demon to come out of the boy and to never return. Now, interestingly enough, according to Jewish folklore, they did not believe that a demon could be exercised unless you had the ability to know the name of the demon that was in the person. Since this demon made the boy mute and deaf, that was impossible, they thought. So I wonder when Jesus says you mute and deaf spirit was this just another way of him showing the crowds and particularly the scribes that he was not bound by their traditions and superstitions that he had power over anything that could be thrown his way this demon makes one last stand before exiting and it initially appears as though the boy is dead and then I love verse 27 so easy to overlook But it says that Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. So Jesus probably got down on his knees, grabbed the young boy, and he lifted him up. What a picture of the tender heart of Christ. He lifts this boy up just as he does to us when we are down. It's powerful imagery, sometimes overlooked in a simple verse. Our text concludes with verse 28 to 29. When he came into the house, his disciples began asking him privately, Why is it that we could not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything except prayer. Now Jesus retreats to a house away from the crowds with his disciples. They're obviously perplexed as to why they were not able to heal the boy. After all, they had been given power to do so. And Jesus tells them that this kind of demon cannot come out except by anything but prayer. Now, we know in some translations, fasting is added here, but according to the best manuscripts, it is unlikely that that is the case. That it it's probably just prayer. In Matthew's account, we're told that Jesus also said to them that it was because of the littleness of their faith. And he tells them if they had the faith of a mustard seed. I think we could probably surmise that the disciples had become overly confident in their successes. And they had been thinking that this was based upon their own ability and not the dependence upon prayer and the Lord who had given them the power. Just later on in this chapter, to see how hard-headed these guys are, that even, even after these events, this is why Jesus is always instructing his disciples, is that they go on just shortly in verses after this, trying to figure out who's the greatest among them. And you wonder, did Peter, James, and John say, hey, we were up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, so we're clearly better than you guys. You guys couldn't even heal a demon. So we see it's a constant struggle that we have, even among these guys who are the closest with Jesus. And you wonder if they were just simply overconfident, that here they had a little bit of power that was given to them, or great power that was given to them, and they were able to exercise this, and now perhaps they just realized, we can just do this on our own. We can do it on our own, and they were operating in the flesh and not in faith. But yet Jesus is telling them that they constantly need to be connected to the power source through prayer, and that is through the Father. We're all familiar with this when we take upon ourselves an action for the Lord or any action in general and yet we attempt to do it in our own strength. It's a recipe for disaster. We may be able to get away with it for a while but eventually it's going to catch up to us. Again, I can look at everybody here and I can imagine and if I ask people to raise their hands how many times that happened in their lives that people would have a lot of stories to tell of the times that we just operated and did things in our own strength. But praise God, Jesus is faithful even when we are not. And he is able to do so much more even with the little faith that we have. So as we close today, I just want us to be reminded that the Christian life is a life of dependency. There's nothing wrong with that word. But our dependency is not in other people. It's not in programs. It's not in the government. Our dependency is on the Lord Jesus Christ. We live by faith in Him as we grow in sanctification to become more like Him. Know that it's a struggle filled with the peaks and the valleys, but the key to success is to keep our eyes on the prize. And that prize, if I may say so reverently, is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He is our ultimate treasure, and He will see us through to the end. And then we will be with him in glory for all eternity. So by God's grace, may we never forget that truth. I close with Psalm 73, verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Father and our God, we thank you once again for this day that you've given us, and thank you for the opportunity, Lord, that we had to open up your word. I thank you for the truth that is found in it. I thank you, Lord, for the reality of the the Christian Bible and the fact that it speaks so truly to our condition, it speaks so truly to the things that are around us in the life that we live, and it speaks so much of the wondrous and glorious things as pertains to your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I know that each one of us that is here this day can probably identify certainly with this man where we understand and we know that we have belief. that We know that we've been given faith. But we know that so often, Lord, that we have so much unbelief that clouds that. And we have doubts that creep in. And Lord, even if it's just a simple prayer such as that that we would constantly proclaim, we ask that you would just continue to guide us knowing that you will guide us and that we place all of our trust into your care. So thank you for that. Thank you for what you have done. And we ask, oh God, that you would just guide us, Lord, now through the rest of this week until we can once again gather, if it be your will, to worship you. Father, we love you. We praise you. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.